So this was not expressly what I had planned on talking about this week. But as you know, last night Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died of complications arising from pancreatic cancer. She served on the court for 27 years, being appointed in 1993 by Bill Clinton. With her untimely death mere weeks before the election, we are, of course, faced with the possibility that for the rest of our lives the Supreme Court will have a 6-3 to three conservative majority. But you probably already knew that. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was someone who was important to a lot of people because of what she represented, and for very good reason. She was the second woman to ever serve on the court, and her rulings in favor of gender equality established her as a feminist icon. People loved her. Her face adorns coffee mugs and t-shirts and tote bags and the covers of exercise books and action figures and God knows what else. And it's for that reason that I believe that the American relationship with Justice Ginsburg borders on the parasocial. She's lionized to such an unhealthy extent that it prevents us from discussing her career and legacy with any semblance of nuance. I'm sad about the passing of Justice Ginsburg, in much the same way that I'm sad when anyone dies. But more than that, I'm furious that the responsibility for so many fundamental rights, for women, for immigrants, for LGBT Americans, was placed solely on the shoulders of an 87-year-old woman who had been diagnosed with cancer multiple times. I wish that we were in a time when we could solemnly reflect upon the life and legacy of Justice Ginsburg. But as you know, we are not. As a result, her death will not be mourned as the death of a human, but regarded as the breaking of a dam. This situation is entirely of her design. Ginsburg's repeated refusals to retire during the periods in the Obama administration when Democrats held both the House and the Senate has led us directly to this point, one where Ted Cruz is being presented as a possible replacement. And this episode is not meant to focus on Justice Ginsburg. This is really an extended introduction. And I know she means a lot to some people, so I'm not going to devote extensive time to talking about things like how her feminism isn't intersectional, how in 27 years on the court she only hired one black law clerk, how she recently sided with the conservative majority to authorize a gas pipeline that could destroy the Appalachian Trail, how she called Colin Kaepernick's silent protest, quote, dumb and disrespectful or how she's repeatedly made decisions that directly harmed Native American tribes. This episode is not an attempt to force a reckoning with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy. Thanks to some of her votes, myself, people like me, and millions of others now have more rights than we were born with, and for that, I'm very thankful but we must recognize that the increasingly bleak situation that we find ourselves in this morning has been, ultimately, caused by Ginsburg's own hubris, and that is something that will serve as a black mark on her legacy for as long as the court is studied. I said in the beginning of this that this isn't what I wanted to talk about this week, and I stick by that, but I had planned on talking about the Supreme Court to some degree, 
just in a somewhat different context. Today, I'm going to talk about another legacy of the court, the historical precedent that it set, and the horrendous crimes ICE is perpetrating against immigrant detainees all across America. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 86, Anatomy of a Genocide. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and of course, www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like what I do, then subscribe or leave a rating. Special thanks in this episode goes out to Greg Thompson, Hidden History's newest supporter on Patreon. If you'd like to join him, then follow the link in the description. So this week has been, uh, unsurprisingly, a pretty hefty news cycle. But one thing that I don't want to get lost in the volume is the fact that earlier this week, a whistleblower revealed that we are currently forcibly removing the uteruses of unwilling women in ICE concentration camps. That's genocide. It actually meets two of the five criteria for genocide laid out by the United Nations. Article 2, Section D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and Article 2, Section B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. In order to be legally considered a genocide, you only have to meet one of the five criteria. I can't really do justice to describing these absolutely jarring revelations, so I figured I'd let the whistleblower herself explain them. Here's a longer clip of Nurse Dawn Wooten on MSNBC earlier this week. Yesterday we learned about a whistleblower, a nurse, uh, working at a Georgia Immigrations and Customs Enforcement ICE facility, leveling, honestly, ghastly allegations, chief among them, that women in that facility, migrant women, say that a doctor was performing unauthorized hysterectomies on immigrant women detained at that facility which, again, is privately run. Now, you might have seen this story uh, zipping around social media, understandably. And the allegations come from a formal complaint that was actually filed with the watchdog at the Department of Homeland Security. And the whistleblower is on the record, is named. Her name is Dawn Wooten. Uh, she was employed by that detention center. And along with those unauthorized hysterectomies, the complaint also alleges the facility lacked protection against coronavirus for detained immigrants, and that detainees suffer from a general lack of medical care. We've been chasing this story all day along with some of my colleagues here at NBC. Tonight, we can report a lawyer named Benjamin Osorio representing women at that very facility told NBC News that indeed two of his clients received hysterectomies they believe may have been unnecessary. And tonight, we here on All In spoke with another attorney who represents two different women who claim they also had unnecessary hysterectomies while detained at this facility. That lawyer tells us that as many as 15 immigrant women were given full or partial hysterectomies or other procedures for which no medical indication existed. Now, we reached out to ICE with these accusations. They sent us a long statement disputing these allegations and the implication that detainees are used for experimental medical procedures. They do say an independent office will investigate these claims. ICE also says that since 2018, only two individuals at the facility were referred to certified credential medical professionals for hysterectomies. Of course, the referred is the question here. I should also tell you, NBC has also reached out to the private company that runs this facility, 
While they are not commenting on the specific allegations, they say they have a strict zero-tolerance policy for any kind of inappropriate behavior at their facilities, and they refute any allegations of misconduct. Now, the nurse behind that whistleblower complaint who got this all started is Don Wooten, and her lawyer, John Witte, join me now. Don Wooten and John Witte, it's great to have you both. Thank you very much. Um, Ms. Wooten, I want to start with you and, and just ask you to tell us what, what you did. What was your job at this facility? When did you start working there? I was first employed at Irwin County Detention Center in 2010. I've been to this facility three on three different occasions. Um, I returned in 2014, worked until 2016, um, came back in 2019. Um, I was a nurse there, a medication nurse. I worked 6A to 6P. We did total detaining and total inmate care were my responsibilities there. You talk about in the complaint uh, a hearing from women who are detained there talking about a specific doctor uh, performing hysterectomies, um, referring to him as a uterus collector. Tell us about how you heard about this doctor and what women said about their experiences with him. You have um, detained women. I had several detained women on numerous occasions that would come to me and say, Miss Wooten, I had hysterectomy. Um, why? I had no answers as to why they had those procedures. Um, and one lady walked up to me here this last time around between October of 19 until July the 2nd. And she said, what is he? Is he the uterus collector? Does he collect uteruses? And I asked her, what does she mean? And she says, everybody that I talked to has had a hysterectomy. And you just don't know what to say. I mean, I don't, I don't have a answer for why that they would come to me and they would say, is he the uterus collector? Would you describe, how would you describe the standard of care, the general uh, s sort of medical environment in which these, these migrants uh, were detained? The standard of care was, it wasn't timely all the time. They would have a procedure to where they would fill out forms to be seen. Those forms would be shredded. Um, they would be told in area instances that, you know, there's nothing going on with them just on numerous occasions. And as a human, you just don't treat people inhumane. I have a title as a licensed practical nurse and I protect my title with dignity to where I was raised by you treat people as you want to be treated. Um, the sanitation, especially during COVID, the sanitation was horrible. We didn't have anything to sanitize with. We didn't have the proper PPE. So they didn't have the proper PPE. They didn't have anything to sanitize with while they were down in the dorms as well. And when you ask, you will be reprimanded. So that's pretty chilling, right? Well, now it's time to talk about the Supreme Court's responsibility in setting legal precedent that allowed for mass involuntary sterilization. It is time, of course, to talk about Buck v. Bell. 
I've talked about the history of the eugenics movement multiple times on this show, but it's often not taught very much in the American education system, and I'll give you three guesses as to why. Let's set the scene. In 1907, a eugenicist and sociologist named Harry Lovelin wrote the first legally scrutinized involuntary sterilization law, which was then adopted in a number of states across the country. An interesting side note, when the Nazi party was solidifying their grip over Germany and codifying race and eugenic policy, they actually looked to this particular law as well as America's implementation of Jim Crow for inspiration as to how to craft the legal framework for a white supremacist ethnostate. As a matter of fact, in 1936, the Nazis gave Harry Lawlin an honorary degree. So anyway, Virginia adopts this law in 1924 and begins to look for a test case to judge its legal viability. They find one at the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and the Feeble-Minded. Their subject? Carrie Buck, an 18-year-old who had been raped by the nephew of her adoptive parents and was institutionalized to save the family's reputation. The Virginia State Colony petitioned its board to sterilize Buck for the good of society. They approved it. Her guardians appealed the petition to the circuit court, which upheld it. They appealed again, which kicked it up to the state supreme court, which upheld it. They appealed again, which sent it before the Supreme Court of the United States. Buck's lawyer, Irving Whitehead, who had extremely large conflicts of interest as he was affiliated with the hospital and, in fact, had authorized the sterilization intentionally poorly argued her case, and so on May 22nd, the court decided in an eight-to-one vote that her sterilization was completely lawful, and that public benefit outweighed the right of the individual to their body. In reference to Buck, her biological mother, and Buck's daughter, the author of the majority opinion, Oliver Wendell Holmes, wrote that, quote, Three generations of imbeciles is enough. The Buck v. Bell decision established legal precedent that undermined the 14th Amendment, the one that guarantees people equal protection under the law. The state of Virginia would keep these sterilization practices on the books until 1974. And in the Nuremberg trials, Nazi doctors cited the case in their defense of medical atrocities. After the decision, rates of compulsory sterilization exploded across the United States, but one place in particular saw the most severe reaction of all. Puerto Rico. Fearing that the large number of non-white people would crush the developing tourist economy, Wealthy Americans began funding sterilization campaigns on the island, hoping to decimate the birth rate. In thousands of cases, pregnant mothers would be refused admission to a hospital unless they agreed to be sterilized. Thousands more were conducted without the patient's knowledge while they were seeking treatment for an unrelated illness. 
between the 1930s and the 1970s, approximately one-third of the entire female population of Puerto Rico was sterilized. The echoes of this chilling policy reverberate through Puerto Rico to this day. All of the atrocities that we are witnessing today have historical precedent. These things don't just appear out of nowhere. But that's not an excuse to be detached and academic about them. There are some people who have this habit where every time something unspeakable happens, they tell you, oh, you should have seen this coming. Turning something infuriating and gut-wrenching into little more than an I-told-you-so moment. That is not what I do here. You should be furious about this. The United States government, in our name, is committing genocide. If hearing that there is a doctor called the uterus collector doesn't give you a knot in the very pit of your stomach, then you should do some serious introspection. Abolishing ICE is not a radical position. It is the only ethical one. Oh, and it's 93 years later, and the United States Supreme Court has still not overturned Buck v. Bell. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.